What's happening? Hope you guys are having a great Tuesday. This podcast is dropping on a Tuesday due to the fact that uh, I'm going to be gone uh, on Wednesday when we usually drop it. Uh, we're going on a little uh, little filming trip. Going to do some uh, some fly fishing, get some uh, some cool content going. Speaking of content, make sure you're staying uh, in in tune with our YouTube youtube channel we got a couple projects that are going to be coming out we just we dropped the turkey film not too long ago um, but hopefully we have a few more things coming out your way soon in the next coming months so make sure you uh go subscribe to that youtube channel give us give us some love there uh seek outside related news in terms of the business goes i just want to let you guys know if you are having if you're going to place an order here soon if you're trying to get some gear in time for hunting season do it asap uh because our our lead times you know this is our busiest time of the year our lead times are extending a little bit um that being said you know most of the time uh if you give us a fair warning um if something's within our lead times we can usually do our best to push something out to get it to you in time if you have a trip september 1st but if you do have a trip september 1st order now because um you know once it gets into august it's the the chances of us being able to push it out get slimmer and slimmer so um but yeah just uh make sure you you put those orders in and um hit the youtube channel um we got a tree planting uh, date coming up august 19th up on the grand mesa here in colorado seek outside crew is going to be up there uh, you guys can find information for that uh, if you want to take part um, on the western slope conservation center if you go to their events page um, it should have it on august 19th uh, it'll have all the uh, all the location and all that good stuff so We'd love to have some folks come out. We're just going to be planting some trees in a previously uh, clear-cut area that was, you know, a lot that was sold for timber. Just going to be replanting some trees there, uh, some habitat restoration. So come check that out if that's something that you're interested in. Other than that, this podcast is, I thought it was really cool because it's going over water rights. And anybody that's lived in Colorado is probably familiar with uh, how convoluted and complicated Colorado's water rights are. It's uh, well known as probably just like with with some of the intricacies, as you'll see in this podcast, it's very confusing. Um, But there are some things that are going on right now that uh, might make it easier for us to access um, some of these waterways. Hopefully it'll make it so that you don't, so that the um, whole river is public not just the, the actual water. Um, but that's for Don Holmstrom of BHA to uh, explain to you guys. So um, let's give it a shot. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Hey, you, should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. <laughs> Some people are just wired that way. All right, so today on the Seek Outside podcast, we got Don Holmstrom, um, and 
I think this podcast is going to be a good one. This is um, an issue. We're going to be talking about water rights. Um, this is an issue that has been coming up a lot. Uh, you see it in the news, you know, with drought and um, just an ever-changing outdoor, um, basically, economy. Uh, it, it is a hot-button topic, and there's specifically some updates in Colorado here on some of the laws and stuff. So we're going to get into that. Um, but Don, why don't you give us a little intro on um, who you are, what you do, and how it relates to, to water rights. Sure. First of all, I'll just note that um, I've been uh, active in backcountry hunters and anglers here in, in Colorado since around 2006. I'm currently the, the state uh, co-chair along with David Lean of Colorado chapter of Colorado of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and uh, also the coordinator of the Habitat Watch Program. Habitat Watch Program, we have uh, over 40 uh, volunteers uh, in every national forest in Colorado, including grasslands, uh, looking out for protecting habitat uh, for big game, uh, wildlife, uh, clean air, clean water, access issues, and uh, it's sort of boots on the ground in local areas. Uh, we also do service projects like barbed wire removal, fence construction, uh, guzzler project. We just completed one in the Pike San Isabel just this last weekend um, in, in the Buffalo Creek area. So uh, BHA obviously uh, is very focused on uh, habitat protection uh, and making sure we have great places to go, uh, recreate, hunt, fish uh, in, in all 50 states. It's a, it's a very fast-growing organization, I'm sure, as you know. Ryan and one that uh, I've been proud to volunteer my time with for for quite a number of years now. Uh, personally, I the last uh, 17 years of my career, I worked at uh, the U.S. Chemical Safety Board, uh, which is a uh, non-regulatory scientific agency that investigates chemical accidents, sort of modeled after the National Transportation Safety Board. Make you know do reports, make recommendations. We Usually they are very significant events, things like the Deepwater Horizon or the West Texas uh, ammonium nitrate uh, fertilizer explosion that destroyed three schools, over 100 buildings, killed 15 people. So a lot of these events are very large, and we'd come in and find out what happened and try to prevent similar occurrences. Um, I retired from that job uh, about five years ago, and I've been doing some consulting, so happy to be uh, on the program and thank you very much for getting this together. Yeah. We, we really appreciate you jumping on, uh, kind of like I was saying. Um, so I guess we'll just dive right into the, the Colorado specific angle to this, to the whole water rights. Um, it's kind of been coming up in the news. You see articles about how there's a possibility of water rights in Colorado changing. Um, but I don't think that a lot of people really know, uh, some of the details there. So could you break down uh, what specific court case this is that is bringing uh, the precedence into question right now um, and how it could change uh, water rights in Colorado? Sure. Um, the, the most immediate case that uh, is very important for us, for those of us that go into the in, fish, go into the backcountry, enjoy 
uh, the rivers and streams and lakes and public waters in Colorado is called Hill versus uh, Warsiwa. And Roger Hill was a fly fisherman, wrote very, one of the first books on fly fishing the South Platte River, uh, somewhat of a well-known guy. There was a section of the Arkansas River he enjoyed fishing uh, and received some opposition from uh, a private landowner asserted that uh, he was trespassing on the section of the Arkansas. And Mr. Hill believed that the section of the Arkansas was navigable at the time of statehood and uh, was the, the stream bread was the property of the state of Colorado and he had a right to go there and he wasn't trespassing and uh, he was threatened uh, with bodily harm on more than one occasion, I believe. And uh, he went to court to, to seek, uh, uh, among other things, a declaratory judgment that he had a right to access that section of river based on a longstanding uh, concept in federal law uh, uh, called navigability for title. It's, it's, uh, there's a section of the Constitution where there's the equal footing doctrine uh, where if uh, the 13 original states all had ownership of their navigable streams, and so states that were brought into the union after those 13 original states, uh, they were given the same rights as those 13 original states uh, to own the, the stream bed and uh, be able to load on the waters of all navigable streams. Obviously, that relies on states asserting those uh, that ownership. And um, one of the unfortunate things that's happened in Colorado historically is that Colorado has not asserted uh, the, uh, the actual navigable streams that where they, where they may have title based on the fact that um, upon statehood they were navigable. And the test is something like navigability in fact uh, and they were, they were subject to uh, or susceptible to commercial navigation. Uh, and uh, that, if, if that can be proven, it can be things like running railroad ties or beaver, beaver pelts prior to 1876. Um, uh, that can, uh, if that can be shown, then uh, that section of the stream, it's a segment by segment analysis, uh, is, is, owned by the state of Colorado. The stream is, that is owned by the state of Colorado, there for the use and enjoyment of the public in Colorado. Um, and that's what the, the litigation was about. So I can go into a little more of the history of that if you're interested in it, but it's uh, a really important case that Mr. Hill just uh, won a, a big step forward in the process of establishing rights for people who fish and float and use public waters in Colorado by uh, prevailing in the litigation in the Colorado Court of Appeals, which he was, a, which the defendants, which included the state of Colorado and uh, Mr. Warsiwa, the defendants, they, they were asserting that, they, that uh, Mr. Hill lacked standing. These are procedural arguments, trying to keep Mr. Hill from getting his day in court to assert facts and have the judge decide, hey, was this in fact navigable at the time of uh, statehood, the, the section of the Arkansas? 
And one of the procedural arguments was it, whether or not he had, he had standing, uh, et cetera. And uh, he was seeking a declaratory judgment. And did he have, did he have the ability to do that as well? Uh, and these were all motions to dismiss by the defendants and they, and they, and Mr. Hill, uh, won on, uh, some of those grounds and is now able to go back into, uh, state court in the trial court and, uh, potentially present his, his case factually. Uh, but we also know that, uh, this is being appealed by the state of Colorado. So, um, this is kind of round one. There's a long sort of tortured history here where, you know, powerful interests have been trying to keep uh, Mr. Hill from actually getting to present the facts. What's kind of frustrating here is that I think the facts are extremely strong that uh, this section of the Arkansas is in other, other sections, other segments of other rivers in Colorado were certainly navigable using the the definition the federal definition uh under uh navigability for title but um these issues have never been decided uh there's been no study done about uh looking at the history of these streams by the state or the executive branch in colorado and um these issues have been undecided ever since 1876 and so now these issues are being brought to the forefront by Mr. Hill and, uh, and the folks who are opposing him are really trying to prevent him from getting his day in court and prevent him presenting the facts because the facts are actually very strong once he gets into court that he, that, that, that section of the stream was navigable. They have, they have historians, uh, on, uh, of the Arkansas river who are willing to, strongly assert that that section of the argue, section of the Arkansas River was in fact navigable prior to statehood because there were runs of railroad ties and um, and uh, boating of beaver pelts etc down the down the river yeah so so navig- navigability right I mean <clears throat> it seems like there there might be a an interesting kind of loose definition. Um, so essentially navigability means that at one point it was used, uh, whether by boat or by waiting, um, for, for commercial purposes. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's, it's primarily, you know, it's primarily going to be floating, um, in these streams that there was, there was floating going on, on this, on the stream, on the stream, uh, it was used for commerce in that sense. You were trying to get from one point to another, which typically would be uh, by a vessel of some kind. So, and that would be prior to statehood, eighteen seventy-six. So, that that that's the the proof that Mr. Hill is willing to come forward with uh, and show that, in fact, that segment of the stream was used. Uh, note that it doesn't have to be. You don't have to have proof that it. It was, in fact, navigable, but it, you, you need to show that it was susceptible to being navigable. But in fact, Mr. Hill uh, is, is stating that he has proof that it is navigable and it was navigable historically. So I think that's something that's important. And um, underlying all of this is, you know, some very, you know, powerful interests in Colorado. Uh, I went to the, you know, one of the, as this 
case snaked its way through first the state court, then the federal court, and back to the state court. It's had a torturous history because there have been all kinds of procedural maneuvers uh, to keep, as I said, keep this case from actually getting to a fact finder. And, uh, you know, a different at the the federal court of appeals hearing, there was a room full of people in three-piece suits who were obviously very interested in the outcome, I think, both in terms of private uh, landowners, but also in terms of um, the uh, large water uh, community, often referred to as the water buffaloes, who are very interested in this impact that will have on uh, uh, and water rights in general. Although there's no, there's no uh, uh, in this particular case, no argument uh, related to appropriation of water it all has to do with the right of access just access to the yeah. screen bed into floating so but i think they would perceive that any crack in the door that advances the public interest would be something that they're not interested in seeing opened yeah so so these water buffaloes as you call them um they're they're people that um you know essentially make money off of water rights whether it's leasing that water to, to ranchers and farmers or, you know, maybe even leasing it to the, to cities and, and, and towns. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And, and, okay. and, uh, and, and, and also states, municipal, I mean, excuse me, counties, municipalities also play a large role in, in, um, securing, you know, water rights within Colorado as well, but okay. in, in private, in agricultural interests, um, et cetera. Yeah. Are there, are there any other, um, industries that have their, like I could see like mining, um, mm-hmm. or I mean, shoot the, the commercial fishing, like guiding. Um, I'm sure that have you, I guess let's just stay on that. Uh, has the, has the commercial fishing industry in Colorado, have they had, uh, some retorts to this, to this court case? No, there haven't been any addition, you know, there's certainly people who are following it. And, and we know that there's uh, a number of interested parties who uh, are supportive of Mr. Hill. Um, uh, You know, some, some folks who are, who have interest in guiding, you know, some fly shops, et cetera. Um, Others, you know, may have more access to private waters and may be more concerned about that. But I think overall, I think the, the the uh, uh, the the business of uh, of fishing in Colorado would be greatly augmented by having expanded uh, fishing opportunities in Colorado, um, and, and I think the vast majority of of those of us that recreate, because you know, frankly, when I first started getting involved in conservation efforts, I was both a, a whitewater. Kayaker, I would add a, a mediocre whitewater kayaker, uh, and uh, and I, I also fly fished, and uh, they were attempting to put a a dam on the Two Forks, or the Two Forks Dam on the South Platte River, which would have inundated some of the gold medal waters that you know some of us uh, treasure fishing from time to time uh, in the Deckers area and even above there into the into Cheeseman Canyon and. Uh, I was, you know, active in in opposing that dam, and we we were victorious, and it was uh, a hard fought campaign. Uh, and 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 since then, you know, we, we 
my uh, my interests have been, you know, in in recreation. I think it's one of the largest industries in Colorado. Certainly, uh, those of us that uh, go outside, that's one of the reasons that we live in a great state like Colorado. We love we love that aspect of the state, and I think it's important to protect and expand access for the public. And certainly, when we have uh, what would appear to be a very significant right to access certain waters that are navigable in Colorado, but that hasn't been asserted. That's something that we should um, we should be fighting for, and, and certainly Colorado backcountry hunters and anglers is is supporting Mr. Hill and his fight to to access those waters. And it's part of a national BHA. It's part of a national campaign, a public water access campaign. There's a public water access pledge. And there's also uh, a breakdown, uh, you know, a really great uh, analysis, a breakdown on the BHA website of, of water, water access rights, particularly in the western part of the United States, and how much they differ. But Colorado is, is a very significant outlier in, in this fight. And, and so this issue is multi-layered, Ryan. And when I say that, I'm talking about Mr. Hill's case, which is using the federal navigability for title concept and something that should have been decided a long time ago, but hasn't. But there's another whole uh, area of significant public access issues in Colorado related to not what may be described as non-navigable waters, uh, non-navigable in the federal definition concept. And many states have have said that those waters are in fact open to the public. Montana is a great example, but there's you know there's probably more than uh, uh, half a dozen states just here in the West that have taken up taken a similar stand. And um, what the decision in Colorado that was very negative to those rights it's called people v emirate it was it was a colorado supreme court decision that um determined that uh some fishermen who were on the colorado river they were floating they were kind of touching uh they had they were in rafts that that uh, had kind of an open bow i think that allowed them to touch the bottom and so they were they were floating through that section and they were charged with criminal trespass and the Colorado Supreme Court determined that they basically had no right to float through private land or or wade on the on the stream bed, and and that's a significant case. And that was and they uh, and they uh, both parties conceded that the uh, the river at that point was non navigable. That's an open question of whether it would have been non navigable under the under the uh, federal definition, but that was. That was uh, something that was uh, uh, conceded in that case, so it was understood as a given fact. And uh, they, most of the facts were also uh, conceded as well. And so that in that case, they were right, largely relied on a section of the Colorado Constitution, which um, provides uh, uh, significant rights, potentially, to the public sort of under a different concept. It could be called the public trust doctrine. And they said something like the water of every natural stream not heretofore appropriated 
within the state of Colorado is hereby declared to be the property of the public. And the same is dedicated to the use of the people of the state, subject to appropriation as herein provided. Um, and so that language would appear to give expansive rights to the public and what sometimes is referred to as the public trust doctrine. But the Emmerich court decided that that language was only related to appropriation and had nothing to do with and more or less negated uh, significant language in that particular clause, um, which again was severely criticized by the dissent, which has become legendary in the state of Colorado because uh, the majority opinion, and this was a Supreme Court, Colorado Supreme Court decision, it would appear to cast doubt on whether or not, you know, you and I have a right to float through private water in Colorado, Yeah, which, which is a significant problem given the, the huge uh, rafting and whitewater industry in Colorado, and that hasn't really been resolved at all. I can go through a little of that uh, as well later, but the, the, the dissent in the Emirate decision pointed out that what they relied on was what, what is commonly referred to as common law, and common law is something that's not in a statute or not in explicit constitutional language, but within the, the broad framework of court decisions, it could date all the way back to English common law, etc. But in this particular case, it was something called the ad, ad colum uh, doctrine, which came from 13th century uh, Italy under, under a medieval uh, feudal law, which said that if you own the land or you, you own the water and you know you own all the way to the sky and all the way to uh, you know hell basically all the way to heaven and all the way to hell which you know the dissent pointed out well look does that mean that you know you're going to pro prohibit commercial aviation and yeah. and just it just added that was totally in a democratic um, country that doctrine is totally uh, inappropriate and harks back to feudal times. And that's one of the major points that BHA makes about these laws uh, that prohibit public access to streams is they appear to be singularly undemocratic. They're not based on our modern democratic form of government and the recognition of the importance of public access to waters like beaches or lakes or streams that so many, so many states and, and areas have granted through this, through another doctrine, a separate doctrine called the public trust doctrine. And so BHA certainly supports that type of access and calls out some of those undemocratic, undemocratic uh, you know, historic practices and feudalism that are not in the public interest. So, man, this is, this is just such a confusing thing because it, it seemed so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out a scenario and I want you to tell me kind of like what, what some of the probabilities are, right? So, so in Colorado, and I, th I think it's important to note that, you know, there's, there's other Western states that kind of have similar, I think New Mexico is, is very similar in its water laws to Colorado. So, so this, this particular subject, uh, this court case that we're talking about could have implications across the West and, you know, hopefully out East too, but all right. So, I'm in Colorado. I am floating down 
the Colorado River, and uh, there's an off sh- offshoot of of the river there. Um, and let's just for for this argument's sake say that it was navigable. It was deemed navigable um, before statehood. So I go up that river, uh, and there's private land on both sides. Uh, I'm in a drift boat this whole time. I go up this this little offshoot of the river. I step off onto the uh, onto the bank, and I'm fishing while some some uh, private landowner calls the calls the law enforcement on me. I take the the court case to court. What what are the odds? Because it, it seems to me like they can't make up a decision, right? There, there's all it's kind of almost like a like they're dying by their bureaucracy here or they're just stalling what are the what are the odds that i get charged with uh, trespassing and what are the odds that you know it it gets okay that's that's legal you're in within your legal realm those are all good questions and and so it's somewhat somewhat similar to the hill case in the sense that you're saying that it there, there's evidence that there was navigable at the time of statehood. And so I would argue that uh, you have the ability to access that because it's, it, it's under the, uh, the, the, the stream bed and the, and, the, and the ability to flow down the waters of that stream are uh, there for the use and enjoyment of the people of Colorado and, and the ownership is with the state of Colorado. That being said, Right now, as the Hills case demonstrates, that is not that is not recognized in any court decisions as of yet, and so that's why Mr. Hill is pushing that. And I, I, what's interesting about the Hill case is really, if you read the case, part of it boils down to that that Mr. Hill got his standing and his ability to bring uh, a declo- you know an action for declaratory judgment based on the fact that he was threatened. So, you know, in, in other words, it can't be a generalized, you, like I, you and I couldn't just go like, hey, I'm thinking of floating a section of the Yampa River and I, th- and I, can, I know it was navigable at the time of statehood because I've read history books about it and um, I'm, go- I'm going to go to court to, write, to make sure that I could do that. You probably, according to the Hill decision, that probably wouldn't be successful you need to have some personal stake in it. In Mr. Hill's case, it was because he tried ahead of time, you know, through his actions to get this decided, but also he was threatened. So he was saying, if I go back, I could be injured or, or uh, threatened with arrest. So in some ways you would, I hate to say this, but you would almost have to be arrested in order for that issue to, for you to have the standing to raise those issues. And, um, and, you know, I'm not advocating that you should do that. So, um, Mr. Hill, just through us, through the circumstances that were present, at least under the current thinking of the Colorado courts, he does have he does have uh, you know standing to bring this action to try to get to a decision maker whether that river was in fact navigable at the time of statehood, and therefore the rest of us in the state of Colorado, Mr. Hill's doing the all of us, you know, tremendous service by moving this forward. And if he's successful, then Colorado will be faced with an important decision, Ryan. And that decision is, are, are we going to move forward from here if Mr. Hill wins 
in in the trial court by having lawsuits by having people let's say arrested let's say you were arrested when you were in that you know that segment of the colorado one of its tributaries uh or are we going to um form some kind of commission or have some mechanism or have the state legislature pass a law that sets up a mechanism to determine uh which streams and uh rivers in colorado creeks in colorado were navigable at the time of statehood and i think that is critical moving forward and how uh that's going to be cited will be important so you know one of the things that bha has done is we've reached out to a number of other um like-minded organizations and had some you know conference calls in order to discuss you know the next steps if mr hill is successful or not and um all of these are you know important questions of how we proceed um, do we need to go through the legislature do we need you know we've already also had uh <clears throat> a couple of conversations with the uh the state attorney general's office concerning you know some of our concerns about this and how we're going to move forward i think it's it's i think most people who are looking at this recognize that the the under underpinning law of navigability for title is so strongly rooted that it's going to be eventually very difficult for the state of colorado to avoid having this um decide have these decisions being made just the fact that arizona which is not a state that's known for being you know uh you know strongly in support of you know public public stream access has set up a commission to make these kinds of determinations. I'm not saying they've done a good job doing that, but they have. I think given that fact, um, I think that we're gonna have to make a decision of how these decisions are going to be made under this particular doctrine. So that's for, that. this applies under a federal concept and you know, and there's, there is, this is somewhat confusing, but this, all this analysis applies under a federal concept of navigability for title for streams that are, are navigable under a federal definition of navigability that they were inf navigable in fact, either used for navigation, used for navigate, uh, navigated for commerce or susceptible for doing so. Then there's a whole set of, that's why I'm saying it's multifaceted. Then there's a whole other set of questions under state law for non-navigable streams. And other states have taken concepts of navigability that are similar to uh, the federal concept, but stretched them and expanded them like Montana and other states. Some states like California have these issues in their state constitution and in statute. They give, and they, and in fact, in California, they said this should be read as expansively as possible. So some states are very keen on expanding the public interest in these areas and our democratic traditions and other states less so. Um, one interesting difference is Wyoming, where I believe it's a state statute, they have clearly and you know allowed floating, and they, at least they've clarified it, that you can float through private land as long as you don't touch the bottom of the stream or get out of your boat or drop anchor. But that's really not clarified in Colorado. In fact, arguably, 
um, one could point to the fact that uh, of the Emirate decision, and um, there would be a concern of being cited for criminal trespass uh, for floating. Now, in fact, de fact, there's a de facto sense in Colorado that landowners generally aren't doing that because of the confusion. Another piece of another piece of the confusion is the, and I think it was 1983, there was uh, a, a attorney general of Colorado issued an opinion saying that because the definition of trespass had changed in statute in Colorado, that uh, in fact, that statute may not be used for, you know, or, or possibly can't be used for prosecution uh, for floating through private land. However, that decision is only advisory. And that may not be the situation that that you find yourself in in a particular county in Colorado, and it also um, uh, you know doesn't apply to civil trespass. And so there is a case in Colorado of litigation on the Taylor River, I and mean, you may be familiar with that. Just uh, from that what you were telling me, yeah, yeah, where uh, there. There was a section below, I believe it was was below um, uh, the dam on the on the Taylor Reservoir, which, as you, as we all know, you know, has some pretty good fishing there, and people and there was guided trips that were through there. There's probably some private trips, and then I think the land the land changed hands, or the landowner began to assert their rights uh, they felt against floating through their private property, and they warned some guided shops against it and and then i think they went to court in civil litigation so they didn't move for criminal trespass they sued them civilly for trespass hmm. and um there was a long winding story to that that uh ended up allowing i believe there was some agreement with one guiding outfit that they could float through at certain times and certain you know times of the day and certain days of the week um, under certain conditions. And so obviously that didn't extend the public right to float through there, but it, uh, it resulted in at least, um, uh, a particular, uh, commercial, uh, guiding outfit being allowed to go through there. But I think it also reflects the, all the, all the financial interests at state. So obviously a lot, there was a lot of pressure from the, commercial rafting industry to change that because that endangered their their business model because you know as you know they float through if you're taking a trip on the browns canyon and through browns canyon or any major section of the arkansas there may be sections that are partially you know half the river or all the river or through private land etc and that's a that's a concern and so this the fact that this is not resolved in colorado the fact that colorado doesn't have and accepted their own state definition of navigability that could be expansive, like Montana, which basically defines it as you know susceptible to recreation, recreational uses like fishing, um, and or California, which says that uh, you know it could include kayaks and and small craft, and you know so all of this, you know the vast array of of other states and doing things on this. So I think Colorado is the only Western state that doesn't have some sort of uh, 
statutory navigability definition that would mm. allow for you know public access of some kind under some conditions and uh, clearly has one of the worst set of stream laws stream access laws in the western united states yeah. which stands in stark contrast to all the great recreational opportunities we have in the state and its significant impact on our economy. It, to me, this issue draws so many parallels um, to the whole corner crossing issue that, you know, it's kind of going on, uh, on across the West. Um, <clears throat> it seems to me that it, most of the law, I mean, especially if you, if you loop in like unlawful enclosures, act right um basically the the public has un, untethered access to pieces of public lands i'm not sure how that applies to water but it it seems like the the law in most cases and colorado constitution saying that the public has you know access to whatever water definitely paraphrasing that but um that's essentially what it sounds like it sounds like the law is in favor of you know public access to these places <clears throat> you think is it just strictly um big private interests that have you know financial stakes in people not being allowed to access these these waters that is holding this up or is it you know just there's a lack of of care from the government what is keeping it from being decided I think it's, I think there's elements of both. There's certainly in terms of, you know, if you and I were to look at like, okay, how do we, how do we clarify, how do we uh, put together a campaign to expand public water access in Colorado? You know, what are our obstacles that we're facing? I think at this point in time, it's fair to say, and I think that there certainly would be supporters in the state legislature for our position. Um, and I think certainly there's elements of potentially in the executive branch that are supportive of greater public access. Um, but you know, uh, currently the uh, the state of Colorado, in terms of their litigation authority with the attorney general's office, is supporting Mr. Hill, which I think is unfortunate. I think they feel that they have to because that's Colorado law. But this is this is an area that the court of appeals made very clear is undecided. In other words. These are these are these questions have never been decided. It's never been decided. This whole navigability of title applying to Colorado under Colorado in Colorado courts is a matter of first impression. It's never really been decided. So it's hard to say that you're defending current Colorado law. You may be defending the lack of decision making by Colorado, but you're not defending any particular decisions. So there, there's also an element of inertia. You know. You know, it's, you can't single out any one particular person or political party, or it, because there's since 1876, no one has made these decisions as far as navigability for title is concerned. Um, that may be, you know, at, at least the, the only benefit to that may be that it wasn't decided back at the time that People versus Emirate was decided, or some other time where those. Those are those sorts of concepts were more. There was more hostility towards, uh, you know, that position. But um, clearly, that these these decisions are going to need to be made. And then finally, 
um, the big powerful interests in terms of if we had to go to the state legislature or get some sort of, you know, uh, action by, you know, the state of Colorado, those, those folks are going to be on the other side. I think there's, there's two interests. One is just large landowners that don't want, uh, don't want public access over, over navigable waters or non-navigable waters. And then there's also, uh, members of the, uh, of the water right, you know, water rights community, those who, the large water rights holders that, um, think somehow this create cracks open the door to allow, uh, the, um, public trust doctrine to extend to water rights as well as public access. Clearly what we're talking about, at least in terms of BHA at this point is public access floating access to the stream bottom and that does not impact any uh, appropriation issue or water rights issue um but we should also be aware that and i think in a, in a positive way the public trust doctrine is being used across the west in a more expansive way for to pr protect you know our vital public lands in terms of you know making sure that they're not encroached upon or harmed or uh, you know, clean water, clean air are not being impaired. And I, I think those are, personally, I think those are important actions that protect our backcountry. But, um, you know, that, so this is a, this is a, uh, you know, BHA, I'm very proud of BHA of taking a, a uh, and putting resources and moving forward on these issues. These are issues that are, that ever since I first came to Colorado and was floating the South Platte River and and saw there was a uh, a strand of barbed wire across the across the river, and had to get out because I couldn't, you know, float anymore. Which is obviously a a, a life safety issue. That's it's very dangerous to have something like that there. You know, to me, these have been these have been critical uh, issues for you know the public interest and for us as hunters and fishers and recreationists, people who want to get out there in this in this great state. And it's embarrassing, actually, that our our public water access laws are so behind most of the rest of the states. While you know we we perceive ourselves to be for in the Western United States, while we perceive ourselves to be so forward thinking in terms of recreation, in terms of protecting, uh, protecting both access lands. And, yep. and our public lands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seems like we we need to figure this out now um, because as we were kind of talking about before the podcast, um, water, especially out west here with these these massive droughts that we're, we've been having. I mean, it's no question that especially lakes, you just see them, they're, they're half of what they used to be. So there's just becoming less water uh, now. And hopefully we'll have a couple good springs and winters and won't have to worry about that. But, you know, the, the odds are that it's going to gonna stay, you know, probably decreasing um, and, unless something massive changes. It seems like we need to get this issue figured out before that happens. Because if there's less water, then obviously there's going to be more people gunning for that same water. There's going to be everybody's going to try to going to be trying to stake that claim. Right. So it seems like now is as good of a time as ever to get this figured out. So 
What do you think the odds of this being figured out to where maybe there is something put into the, at least a definition on navigability? What are the odds that this gets settled in the next year here? Um, I think, I think the, this particular Hill case will advance. Um, uh, I think there's a possibility that the Colorado Supreme court may, may not decide favorably to Mr. Hill. I think it's a slim possibility, but I think that, um, I think that would only be a small, uh, roadblock if it happened in the in the larger scheme of things because i think these issues are going to get decided one way or another and are inevitable to be decided uh but i think mr hill's chance i think mr hill's going to be victorious i think his legal arguments are incredibly strong uh and you know i've been looking at these these water access issues you know i became a lawyer back in 1986 and i've been looking at these issues ever since and so to me, I think his his his, his uh, assertions are are incredibly strong, and I think I think that case will advance within this next year. Um, but once it advances, I think it one of the critical things, Ryan, is for us as a community, an outdoor recreation community, to coalesce on the notion of how to then move forward together to get the powers that be, whether it be the legislature, the executive branch, um, to, um, to set up mechanisms for decision-making on not deciding this by segment-by-segment segment litigation approach, but rather have the state through some rational, fair-minded uh, way make scientific and historically accurate decisions about whether or not these streams are navigable at the at the Colorado streams are navigable at the site time of statehood and which ones were and which segments were. And so that we don't have prolonged litigation fights, which is not good for the people of Colorado, not good for, you know, using taxpayer revenue to, to fight these access lawsuits it would then be a waste of time because Hill would have won his case. Mm -hmm. And um, how do we how do we move forward to then make rational decisions that people can live with that hopefully will be fair um, and fair to the public interest? Um, and clearly, you know, the BHA supports, you know, private property interests. Um, we support, yeah. you know, opposing, obviously, any kind of trespass or yeah. any kind of illegal activity. But uh on the other hand, when clearly the public has an interest historically, and one can argue a strong right historically to access these rivers and public waters, um, we need to get those decisions and the, and the muddied waters cleared up so uh, we can further uh, recreation in our great state and further uh, the public interest in in. in um, so these waters truly will be for the use and enjoyment of the public. Yeah. Um, does BHA, like, is there anything that uh, the, the casual uh, American or Coloradan uh, can do if they are in support of this, of if they're in support of, you know, of Mr. Hill, is there anything that they can do to, to further this or to help the cause specifically maybe through BHA? 
Sure. I think one of the most important things that, uh, you know, we're doing at this point in time is reaching out to um, recreational organizations to educate ourselves about what their views are and um, and what the Hill case represents, because so many of us were not aware of this navigability for title concept. I mean, up until a few years ago, I had never heard of it, and I, I've been in and around these issues for a long time. And so, I think education is a is a key issue. So, doing outreach, BHA is willing to come to organizations and do education around that or assist organizations to educate their own membership. I think getting active um, with your elected officials is really important to explain. We have to prep. We have to assume progress is going to be made. And then somehow this may fall to the legislature, in which case we have to go to, and this is truly, I think, a bipartisan issue. I think it, it improves our, our state economy. Everybody's for that. There may be a handful, you know, the handful of people this will impact will be a small number, uh, I think, relatively speaking, a small number of the population in terms of, of landowners. But I think overall, the vast majority of people are going to benefit from this. And I think this is certainly something that uh, politicians of all uh, particular perspectives could could. Um, uh, get behind. And so I think educating your local representatives around this. And then I think finally educating our um, state attorney general in terms of communicating with their office and, and, let, and folks letting them know, um, you know, F Phil Weiser uh, is the current state attorney general. And I think accessing and communicating with his office and letting him, letting him know how you feel about this issue would be important. At this stage, we're really... Um, some of this is contingent upon, you know, what happens in this legal case. Other aspects is sort of like, well, why is the state of Colorado, you know, taking the stand that they're taking? I think that's a legitimate question, and that's relevant right now um, in terms of the attorney general's office position. And then uh, finally, I think it's also um, uh, try people, you know, when I've been involved in these kinds of issues before, and I think back to that Two Forks Dam issue that large recreation, hunting, fishing, other organizations were, were active on and boating uh, in community. Um, I think back to, you know, just the citizen research that went into that. It wasn't, it wasn't that you had, you know, professors who were, you know, opining or whatever. You had folks in the community who were, really writing and analyzing what the impact to the ecology of that river would be, et cetera. And I think in the same case, you can have um, people in their own communities looking, trying to understand the history of a segment of a particular river that you think it was navigable at the time of statehood and trying to compile that information. Sometimes that information is local. And that's one of the benefits of BHA and its boots on the ground. So we have a number of, of our Colorado leadership team, again, over 40 people, and then um, 40 Habitat for volunteers. So these are organized volunteers that can, that can um, get engaged in that kind of work. But more broadly, people supporting this issue can, can assist in, in that type of research and analysis, um, which some of us may know. And some of that resides in the community, like, hey, my great-grandfather used to 
you know, run beaver pelts down, you know, this, you know, this particular, this particular section of river. And I have some, you know, information, all that kind of information eventually will be extremely useful. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, is there similar to, um, how, um, private land easements, uh, you know, forest service road easements, you know, just easements, that are kind of coming forth with the Mapland Act. Um, is there a similar kind of system for telling whether a river or stream was navigable back, uh, navigable back in the day? Like, is there an office that keeps any sort of record or, or are we just kind of guessing at this point? I mean, obviously like the Colorado, all the big rivers are, were navigable, but is there any um, detailed I don't, I don't know what they would be documents or whatever that would show what pieces were navigable or used. That's a, that, that's a great, that's a great question. And some of those records are government records, historical records. You know, you think of the, just the way example would be the Lewis and Clark journals. I'm not saying those would be necessarily used for stream access, but there's just historical records uh, of, of both explorers, but also commerce that occurred um, you know, on these, on these segments of river historically. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's things that are, that, you know, that are potentially in libraries or publicly available library of Congress or, uh, other local locations and local communities, um, that would be extremely, you know, useful to, to understand. I think, you know, this it depends how this rolls out. You know, if we have to go segment by segment, I'm sure um, we'll be looking at, uh, you know, what the next likely candidate for some sort of litigation would be. But prefer much preferably, it would be uh, looking at, um, you know, a, a broader state map and making determinations uh, based on. Uh, uh, what historical records were available or oral histories, etc. Um, you know, so th those types of things would, uh, would be very important. Um, and it's a big undertaking. I think that's why some, some states like Arizona, you know, went to a commission because you, you know, it's requiring resources on our, on our undertake that. I think even more preferably would be a state legislature taking action to not only expand access under that, you know, equal footing navigability for title federal doctrine, but more broadly to non-navigable streams in the state of Colorado um, to, to achieve something more like uh, several of the other West, Western states here have in terms of sometimes we refer to it as Montana style access would be access to the stream dead and, and ability to float on na navigable or non-navigable. Streams that are subject to susceptible to rec regulate um, recreation, fishing, etc. As yeah. long as you stay within the the high water mark of that stream bed. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, f I feel like that's how it should. I don't know. It's so interesting too because it's like if somebody has a, a big swath of of private land, right? Um, like. I, I get it like a river is a transport. It's almost kind of like a road or at least it was back in the day, but now they're not so much like that. Right. I mean, there, there's a lot other, a lot of other ways to get to X place or, or Y place. Um, but it's, it's just interesting 
that, um, you know, this little sliver of, you know, say somebody has a 3000 acre ranch, this little sliver of, of water, um, is, is essentially public land or, or how that could work. Right. Cause I mean, you know, you could, some of these offshoots of the Colorado river go way back, right. They, you know, 10, 20 miles to their, to their headwaters. And, you know, if you could just basically wet weight up that, um, it, it would be pretty cool, but I also, you know, I, I kind of do understand the, pri- the, especially nowadays, the, the private land, um, perspective on it. Right. Cause it's, you know, um, especially ranches that have changed hands in the last, you know, 20, 30 years where, um, it's expected, um, that you, you own this piece of stream. It's not, you know, maybe in the deed, that's not how it's written up, but, you essentially do right, and and that's the expectation. So I could see why there would be some pushback from landowners, like, "Hey, I, I bought this piece of property, thinking that I had this amount of of private stream that I could fish or do whatever I want on, or not let people fish." Um, it's just a, it's a very, I, I find it fascinating uh, because it's just so confusing. And and every growing up in Colorado. Um, that's all you ever hear. Like you, you even read it in the history books that Colorado has had a long history of very complicated water laws. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for there to hopefully be some resolution. I mean, even if it's, even if it's, uh, you know, that maybe if it's bad for public land users, right. I mean, it it would be just nice to, to get it settled to know, um, so anyway, I, I really appreciate you uh, talking on that. I, I do want to kind of switch gears here real quick. Um, we didn't necessarily talk about this beforehand, but I'm very uh, curious about Habitat Watch. That's that's the other nonprofit you work for. Is that correct? It's, it's actually a program within BHA. So Oh, um, oh it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, – the whole genesis of the program and, you know, David Lean was, uh, you know, pulling this together because I, I think he and, and the leadership of BHA at the time felt that it was very important to uh, have people in local communities to be boots on the ground who knew the terrain, who knew, you know, uh, what, the, what the landscape looked like and what impacts uh, were damaging to the landscape. Uh, has helped establish a program within BHA. It's a volunteer program to uh, have people agree to volunteer on a particular national forest. And we kind of do it by administrative unit. So it's like Pike San Isabel or, mm-hmm. you know, Arapahoe Roosevelt, et cetera. Um, and uh, their, their job is to, you know, it's not that somebody, you know, some of these, National forests, we may have as many as, uh, you know, over 10, but in some cases, two or three uh, Habitat Watch volunteers, because some of them are very expansive. They spill over it across the continental divide into from the eastern slope to the western slope. And so, um, but there typically is a particular, you know, for those that hunt and fish and recreate, it's a particular area that we tend to go to more than others, or we kind of call home or we like, or maybe geographically it's a you know our back door and we're very familiar with it and we uh recreate there uh you know consistently and so if we're 
hiking up a trail and we see a gate that's open that should be closed where people are accessing, you know, in trucks or other things impacting, uh, you know, elk wintering ground in the winter or some other impact and, you know, calving grounds in the spring. I'm just using that as an example that they, they can then access the decision makers in the, you know, whether it's the district ranger or the district area wildlife manager with CPW, et cetera, and try to raise those issues and, and address them. And if there's meetings, you know, local meetings on changes of use or closing off roads that are important to access, you know, hunting, hunting opportunities, there's people in that, there are people in that community who can go to those meetings. They're well known. They have a good, you know, a good reputation and they can speak to those issues and they know the landscape and they know the details and they know what the impacts are. Yeah. So it's essentially neighborhood watch, but for national forest right and for you know and for habitat so yeah there is an element of access there too but it, it's primarily formed around uh you know habitat concerns you know some of which is you know includes trail use trail abuse you know creating social trails um also uh uh involving you know national forests undergo you know, reviews of their plans, their management plans, getting involved in those, what different areas are designated as, how that looks, um, trying to protect, you know, uh, you know, significant uh, areas for, you know, wildlife uh, protection and uh, migration routes. All those are things that, you know, are kind of foremost in the minds of a Habitat Watch volunteer. Um, and, and so there might be some kind of NEPA action, you know, some kind of federal, some, some, somebody's proposing to do something on federal land and has to do some sort of NEPA study, environmental assessment, environmental impact statement, uh, Habitat Watch volunteers will get involved in that and comment on that, uh, during the review process. And so those are types of things that Habitat Watch volunteers do that in some, and also stream access. We have had projects. Uh, creating boat ramps uh, and uh, and and, and uh, helping to get easements, et cetera. And so it's kind of a wide ranging um, set of duties. And there's people who in BHA obviously who aren't Habitat Watch volunteers who do those same things. And so it's not just uh, you know specific to a Habitat Watch volunteer, but it what's unique about this program is it's specific to a particular somebody's taking ownership over a particular part of a national forest and, you know, keeping an eye on it. And that's, and we, we think that program's been really su- successful and we emphasize to people not, you know, don't burn out, you know, if you gauge in an activity, you know, uh, you know, on a project for a couple of weeks in a year, that may be enough. You don't need to, we want to keep people active for a, a long period of time and doing those kinds of projects and not feel like you have to do, you know, half a dozen things in a year to feel like you're doing your job. We want those eyes and ears um, to be uh, ongoing. That's awesome. Is that is that just a Colorado BHA, or is it? Are there other chapters of it? So other other states have implemented Habitat Watch, okay. and you know we get calls about our program. You know, California has initiated that. I think uh, Montana has as well, and in, in other states. Um, and so, you know, what's good about, I think, the way we're organized in Colorado is we, um, 
we disperse, you know, we have a very flat organizational structure. We're more folk. We're not focused on, you know, a hierarchy of leadership and, and, and having people always getting together and, and talking about stuff. We're more into, you know, just having people get out and do things. And so with Habitat Watch volunteers, there's a certain autonomy of you know, people in far flung communities who are doing various, you know, uh, conservation activities. Um, but not necessarily, you know, if something is, uh, if somebody has a question about something or needs some assistance, we'll certainly lend a hand, but in terms of, you know, other parts of BHA, but it's, it's really trying to create a broad, as a broad, a, uh, leadership structure as, and develop as many leaders as we can. Nice. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Don, I don't want to take too much more of your time here. Um, I, I really appreciate you you jumping on. Um, but did you have anything else that you wanted to touch off on before we before we get out of here? No, I just wanted to, to thank you, Ryan, and, and thank uh, Seek Outside uh, for their, you know, support for conservation and, and long time support for for BHA and uh, I really enjoy my, uh, I have one of your original tents that I really, uh, really enjoy and uh, it's held up really well over the years and uh, kept me uh, some monsoon like weather in South Central Colorado. Uh, it's kept me uh, from being wet for a week. So uh, nice. it, was, it was awesome. So thank you for all the things you guys do. Hey, yeah, no problem. Well, appreciate you and everybody listening. Uh, if you're interested in Habitat Watch, uh, I would assume there's information up on the BHA website. website. Ways, to, yeah. ways to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and make sure you hit up that attorney uh, attorney general. Let them know. We got we to gotta open up more fishing spots. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Ryan. Good talking yeah, to you. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Bye-bye.